This is Dream Power Radio, the place where your dreams turn into reality. Here is your host, Debbie Spector Weissman. Hello, 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 and welcome to Dream Power Radio. This is the place where we talk about dreams, both daytime and nighttime dreams, and how you can use them to make the internal shift to a life you love and rediscover the truth of who you really are. Wouldn't it be nice if every day was filled with sunshine and the hardest decision you had to make was which outfit to wear? Unfortunately, life doesn't work like that. We all have issues to deal with. Some big, some little, some with simple solutions, and some that take time to heal. One thing that falls in the latter category is trauma. At some point in all of our lives, we've had to deal with the trauma of some sort. Transitory traumas, like a broken arm or a teenage breakup, are painful at the time, but they usually have no lasting effects. Then there are the traumas that linger, things like chronic pain, the effects of abuse or violence, for example, that can alter our outlook on life and even make us feel like life is not worth living. My guest, Agape Garcia, survived the worst kind of domestic violence. But instead of shrinking into a victimhood, she became determined to rise from her personal struggles, to transform herself into an advocate for other trauma sufferers. Agape has developed her Be Your Incredible Self program to help others restore their internal sense of control in order to move from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth. Welcome to Dream Power Radio, Agape. Thank you for having me. What an intro. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, Agape, your story is so powerful. And I wonder if you mind sharing with my audience what happened to you. Wow. Well, 20 years ago, I survived a double attempted homicide. I was eight months pregnant. I was a thousand plus miles away from home. I had just left everything that I knew that I created willingly, willingly left. The invitation to go came from a job being a job offer being extended to my boyfriend at the time. And of course I said, yes. (laughs) And let me just give you the setting. Basically I was in my, I was in my mid twenties and I felt like I had my life together. I had Uh, eight-year-old daughter. I was already a single mom at the time, raising her by myself with no child support. I had a babysitter that was about three blocks away. My job was like three blocks away. The school was right in front of where we lived. I mean, I had a down pat there. You couldn't tell me anything. (laughs) I was working full time, paying my own bills. I was in college. I was doing it. And I just did not think that I was going to be exposed to everything that I built myself guarding my daughter. I left an abusive relationship when I was pregnant with my daughter. I was in a teenage, I was in a teenage abusive environment. And after I had her, I decided to, to go and it was just her and I. And so by the time that I was leaving and packing to go across country to start this new family. I had no red flags. I met the parents. I met the coworkers. I met the friends. There were no red flags for me. And so fast forwarding, when I arrived to our new home, he had already been there and settled in. And when my daughter and I arrived, we spent the first month just getting to know the area, getting her acclimated to the school, getting to know the doctors, you know, taking care of business. And 
when our belongings arrived, which is about three weeks later after we did, I was so excited to unpack and get nested and ready for my new arrival. You thought was, it was a perfect situation. Yes. <laughs> How exciting, right? And so eight months pregnant, putting stuff away, you know, just like un unbelievable how much crap I had. Didn't realize how much there was and I had to make room for more. And I came across the belongings of another woman. And my heart is pumping out of my chest. My eyes are bulging out of my face. I'm like, okay, hold on. How many conversations do we have? You know, like about friends or family over, you know, did somebody leave something? I don't want to assume the worst. Like, what the heck? And <clears throat> this was early in the morning. So I was by myself. He was at work. My daughter was at school. And I decided to not call, but to really just think before I wanted, I didn't want to come across accusatory. I just, I just needed time to think about how I was going to address it. So I decided to wait until later in the day after dinner was, you know, cooked and my daughter was in bed and it was just us. And I said, we need to have a conversation because when I was unpacking today, <clears throat> excuse me, I came across the remnants of another female. And I would like to know what this is, because if there's something that you need to tell me, I just left everything you know, you need to tell me. And I was accused right away of going through his personal belongings. And I was like, okay, hold on. Maybe you didn't understand or hear me clearly. I said, while I was putting our stuff away <laughs> and making space for the belongings that came the, for the family that we're going to be, I didn't even get a chance to finish repeating myself before he had already pushed me onto the floor because wow. we were sitting on the couch. I was already on the floor and he sat on my pregnant stomach straddled himself on top of my pregnant stomach and with his left hand he had his hand around my neck and his right hand was closed fist punching me over and over and over and I'm squirming and I'm trying to like just I don't I don't even know I can't recall exactly what was happening during that time what I recall is my daughter saying mom mom and when I heard my daughter's voice from the top of the stairs, it was like, I said, that's my daughter. And my feet like slammed on the floor and my hips thrusted towards the ceiling to get him to roll over me, which he did. I have no idea how I popped up on my feet the way that I did. And by the time I ran behind the couch, my daughter was taking the last step off the stair, grabbed her little hand and we, we took out, took off, went straight right out the door. And I was at the neighbor's, tu, 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 tu. please let me use their phone. I just need to make the, a phone call. I need to call the police. They let me in. They let me use the phone. I did call the police and it felt like forever for them to get there. The neighbor had kids. My daughter went to go play with the kids. This was like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night already. You know, they just kind of put the kids together to keep them away from this situation. And I just remember <clears throat> crying crying, nonstop crying, like devastated saying like, is this, is this, is this my reality right now? Like I have no job. I have no friends. I have no family. I have no idea anything. I have no, I'm in a brand new state. I'm across the country. I have no idea what the laws are. What's going to happen? How, when I, nothing, if I was even, if my, if my baby was okay, I knew nothing, could not believe that this was happening. It was complete devastation. By the time the police got there, they took my statement. They did their protocol. I had blood blisters and purple swelts already 
very visible behind my ear. And the police officer basically told me that it, it in his professional opinion that he felt that it was almost premeditated based on how I was struck down based on where he was hitting me. It was it was very odd to hear and something I wasn't even able to wrap my head around at the time anyways. And so they ended up taking him. He stayed at the at the apartment where everything went down. And I quickly realized that there was no place for me to go immediately. There was no shelter available in the middle of the night. There's no anything. The police said that, you know, to call in the morning and see what the status is, not to worry about anything in the next few hours, but where I'm from and a few hours is all that it takes. So I was not trusting that, you know, <laughs> I stayed up. All... Oh, I, I went back to the apartment and I barricaded the door with as much furniture as I could push up against it. And I had a code word for my daughter, letting her know if I said a certain word, what she needed to do you know, jump out the window, jump onto the onto the porch, go to the same neighbor. And for whatever reason, she wasn't afraid or asking questions. She was just like, okay. And, and I knew that I had just a few hours to, till I had to get her to school. I knew that I had to get her to school because I needed to go to the emergency room to see that if my baby was okay. So it was, it was, so much in such a, a short amount of time. What ended up happening is he ended up getting time and I had to go to testify. So he was held until the court date and I showed up eight months pregnant, eight and a half by that time. And <clears throat> I felt I felt strong in what I was going to say, everything, how I was going to say it, the truth, what I'm sharing with you now. And when I was on the stand and when he walked in the room and made eye contact, like we made eye contact. And when that happened, my, my confident shoulders that were, you know, back and upright literally caved in my voice shriveled. And I was like, I had no idea what I had become and I couldn't snap myself out of it. And I had this, like, I say, like, I shrunk like a punk and, like, became this shriveled little raisin. And my voice was ridiculous and nothing like what it is right now. And the DA and the judge, I guess, had seen that before and said that, said exactly that. I've seen this before <laughs> and, you know, and gave him time. And and from that moment, I knew that. I had to figure out what in the heck was I going to do because I only had about 37 days until my due date. And now that I know that he's going to have time, I need to figure out how am I going to maneuver my life? And I knew that I was already high risk. I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back home. I didn't want to go back home. I didn't even tell anybody what happened. I was dealing with it by myself. I stood in line for food stamps. I stood in line for public aid. I stood in line for every single thing that I could possibly try to get assistance from because I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get unemployment. I couldn't get disability. I literally had nothing. Nobody was going to hire me. <laughs> I mean, I that, that was, pregnant. yeah, exactly. So this, this was my reality and there's nothing that is really deemed real time help. At one point, I didn't have money to pay gas to put in my car. I didn't have money to pay my cell phone. So whoever was trying to call me that was calling me back with resources, potentially, they couldn't reach me. I was fighting for my life. 
I was fighting for my children's life. I became protector and provider to the best of my ability. That became my my laser focus, everything. I had to just sell whatever I could, leave whatever behind that I couldn't carry and start from scratch. Okay, that is just such a powerful story. Agape, after enduring this kind of trauma, how did you develop the strength to not only go on with your life, but to strive to create what I like to call your dream life, which you actually have, have done since then? <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's a very loaded question because it wasn't you know, always like that. There was plenty of times where I cried, cried, cried. However, I quickly realized and thankfully quickly realized that staying in that place, that space was not going to change my situation. It was not going to move anything. I have to move the needle if I am going to accelerate. Otherwise, I'm just sitting there revving the engine, doing nothing, going nowhere. And that is not going to, like I said, change the situation. So I ended up out of, you know, just my own faith and prayer and the change from why me, why me, what's going on? How could this be to this is not happening for no reason. I have got to have the strength. I'm not given more than I, I cannot endure. This obviously is happening for a reason. I'm just now asking for the strength and the clarity to move, move, move. And I, I, it was adrenaline. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Everything was definitely adrenaline driven. And I had to look at myself in the mirror and with be your incredible self, the program, one of the programs I have is definitely mirror work because I know that it does work. I literally had to go in the mirror and talk to myself the way that I would talk to somebody like my very, very best friend. Are you crazy? What are you thinking right now? Like that is not, this is, this is not what you expected. This is not what you left for. This is not your fault. This, you cannot control anybody. You can only control yourself. This is not something that you were the, a, a driving force with, you know, you have to get up and you have to keep on moving. You have to keep on moving. Look at your kids, look at your kids, look at your kids. I mean, I was literally like in the boxing ring with myself, but in a positive training type of way, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do. Uh, I'm, I'm just stop you there. Cause we do have to take a short break now. Well, when we get back, I want to hear more about what you said to yourself and, and how that did transform you and, and get you out of victimhood and into a powerful position you were in. So we are going to take a short break. We are speaking with Agape Garcia about surviving trauma, and we'll be right back. From to better, I'm Kelly Sullivan-Walden, a.k.a. Dr. Dream. And I just wrote the book, A Crisis is a Terrible Thing to Waste, The Art of Transforming the Tragic into Magic. You can pre-order it wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Dream Power Radio with your host, Debbie Spector-Weissman. Yes, welcome back to Dream Power Radio. I'm your host, Debbie Spector-Weissman, and we're talking about trauma with Agape Garcia. Well, Agape, before the break, you were talking about you have this mirror technique where, where you literally have a conversation with yourself. At the end, what does that produce? It produces trust within. When something happens, beautiful, t beautiful question. 
This is this is my segue into post-traumatic growth. When something happens so devastating to you that your life is flipped upside down and your understanding of things are just completely diminished. When you become a stronger, wiser individual from that trauma, you are then in that space of post-traumatic growth, okay? <clears throat> now, what I was saying and going through during that time in that mirror work with that mirror work that I was doing myself. And I didn't even know that it was such a thing. I honestly had no idea. I did not trust me. I didn't trust me. I was in such a blanket of doubts. I was wrapped in such a blanket of doubts, questioning everything about me, not even being able to make a flipping decision, simple decisions. I just knew that I had to make calls to get the help that I was referring to earlier. And at the at the end of every single day, while I find myself questioning myself, I had to intercept that and remind myself that it's not about questioning. It's about understanding that it's for a reason and to figure out what I need to do. Not so much the why, but the how. Not so much why I need to do it, just how to do it. So when something happens to you so traumatically, you lose trust in your own judgment. You lose trust in your own confidence. You lose trust so, so deep within yourself. And that's, and I may not be speaking for everybody, but I'm surely speaking for myself. <laughs> so with that, the mirror work truly helped me to trust myself again, because I was building that relationship with me. I was able to talk to me the way that I would speak to my best friend. And I did it every day, every morning that I got up every night before I went to sleep. And it's crazy because the way that my sleeping arrangement was, there was this one tiny little hole in the blind. And every morning, as soon as that sun hit that tiny hole, it didn't matter where I slept and what, however I was sleeping, that hole was right there and it woke me up and it just became a routine. And that allowed me for 20 years I'm talking 20 years later now, so many things that I've been through for self-development and things that I did on my own seeking the help because I didn't have the means or the time to pay people or the time to, to share. I was a single mom working full-time and raising my two kids. I continuously talk to myself. I continuously confide and trust in my core belief system, and it may I may not even to this day know exactly who I am, but I damn sure know who I am not. And from there, I create my boundaries and do not bend them because once I do, I am then responsible for what happens. And I will not be a victim or be victimized to the place that I invited it because I stretched my boundaries. It, it, it cannot happen again. That's the wisdom that comes from the trauma. You can protect yourself. And let me, let me say that. Let me, let me re say that it not so much protect yourself. It's I found a way to be vulnerable and safe at the same time when it comes to trusting others, because you have to trust me first. Right. Very, very, very well said. You talk so much about trust here, but another area 
where people who, who suffered traumas develop a sense of not having any control over anything. So how do you regain that feeling of you do have control over your life? Well, well, that's very interesting because the opposite side of the spectrum is what happened to me. I created such an extreme independence that it became self-sabotaging. <laughs> so because when you don't, when you don't trust, you do everything. So for me, that's, that's the road that I took. And for that, I learned from that, I learned that that is a trauma-driven response. And it's also considered a form of, you know, deeper isolation and protection. You feel you have to protect yourself because there's nothing else there. Right. And the trust issue again. Absolutely. You did touch upon that that phrase, extreme independence, and you said that was worsening because you were going in total opposite direction. How were you able to get to that point where you were able to feel comfortable asking other people for help or working with other people again? You know, it's a gradual thing. <laughs> I will be honest and say that it probably has a lot to do with as my kids grew up and they became more independent and it was less of me needing to be helicopter mom. However, if you ask my kids, I never stopped being helicopter mom. <laughs> so but that was also, and I want to touch on that because when my daughter was leaving the nest in her in her mid-20s, she said that she doesn't really recall all the details of what happened that night and the following days, which made me feel really good because I did protect her from that trauma. However, you know, of course she hears about it and has heard plenty about it. But she said that with all of that protecting, providing, independence. As much as I was there as a helicopter mom, I was not emotionally available for her, which really hurt. It really stung because my love language is also being of service. So me being that helicopter mom, always there, always there, doing, providing, giving, giving, doing, providing, that was that I thought I was a good mom. And for her, yeah, I was a good mom, but I was emotionally unavailable. So there was that void there. And for me personally, my mother abandoned me when I was little, like toddler little. So I didn't have that bond with my mother. And I kind of ended up chalking it up to that, sort of, kind of, but realized that we needed to go seek help. And we went to like a three-day transitional emotional intelligence type of event. And we learned our love languages. It's been seven years. We've been working on it ever since. At first, she thought I was being sarcastic. And she was like, you know, pushing me away and... I just came back and said, listen, either either you want this or you don't. I'm putting, you know, an effort, a real true effort. And if you feel I'm being sarcastic and you don't want it, I can go back real quick <laughs> to what I know. So we're we're in a good space now. And that is one of the things that I talk about in my program with the mirror work as well is having emotional intelligence asking how you're emotionally feeding your children, understanding some of their temper tantrums from, you know, 
trauma and or emotions that are bottled up, they can be acting the way that you're feeling because they pick up on the energy. It's being able to, it's being able to level up your coping skills and still be able to be that, that change that you want to see in the world and the role model you absolutely want your kids to have as, as your personal legacy. That is so important. I want to touch a bit on your program because you help people regain their sense of selves after being assaulted. And in my intro, I talked a little bit about the different kinds of traumas. Is there a difference in the way you approach someone who's like, for example, a crime victim versus someone who's endured years of emotional abuse? So the short answer is no. And that is because I'm a certified high performance coach through Brendan Bouchard. So I use that as the foundation of the program. It is a a 12-week high performance style. And I add an additional four to that because I bring in the post-traumatic growth and the requirements for creating new positive habits. It takes four to six months to break a bad one. It only takes 21 to 28 days to create a new one. So as soon as we get onto that swing of things and creating those daily habits, then we go into a conditioned behavior and we can start the program. And that's how you do that. A lot of people relive their traumas through their nightmares. And this is a show where I do a lot of talk about dreams. And I've talked with many experts in dream work who have helped people deal with their fears and terrors that the nightmares bring up. Do you do any work with people in their nightmares? Not necessarily. I really have no idea about how to really coach through nightmares. I do understand that, you know, your dreams and nightmares are your subconscious and there are different meditative music and different, you know, writing styles that you can do or your prayers and that can shift it significantly. But beyond that, no. Okay. Is there a final thought you'd like to leave with our audience as as we're getting close to the end here? A final thought? Sure. That would be, you know, do not neglect your mindset. That is the highest price you can pay for anything in the world. You know, what I said earlier, it's okay to not know who you are know exactly who you're not and put your boundaries right there. Mm, Wonderful. Well, Agape, how can people find out more about you and your work? Oh, yes, please. BeYourIncredibleSelf.com, all spelled correctly. That's also on Facebook, also on Instagram. I just started a nonprofit organization calling Confronting Domestic Violence, and that is to help relocate real-time victims that have a safe place to go but not the means to get there. And we are, we just launched, we are an official 501c3 looking for volunteers, any sort of contributors. I am truly wanting to make a difference in this world and help families give a second chance in life. Well, Agapi, thank you so much for being on Dream Power Radio today. Thank you for having me. Hey, we've been speaking about thriving after trauma with advocate Agapi Garcia. I hope you've enjoyed today's program. If you have, please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Until next time, this is Debbie Spector-Weissman saying, sweet dreams, everybody. 
You've been listening to Dream Power Radio with your host, Debbie Specter Weissman. For more information on Debbie or to sign up for her newsletter, go to dreampowerradio.com. This has been Dream Power Radio.